This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer Ring Podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner. This is podcast episode 238. I am sitting in the same room that I was in last week's, uh, for, for last week's podcast. But joining me now on this episode is Dr. Laura Burns, one of the most academically qualified people we've ever had here on the podcast, Director of Research and Development for Omega Yeast. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thank you. So proud to be here. It's a fun thing to be able to talk with you and just talk science. <laughs> It's, uh, I feel like I've seen you a lot lately. Like, uh, we, I, we saw, I saw you in Asheville and you came out to, you know, to help and support and help, uh, folks at our brewery workshop in Asheville, North Carolina, learn about, uh, yeast and that kind of process as they get into their brewery programs. And then we, uh, we connected in Chicago a few weeks ago and we recorded a class for our all access video program on, uh, thiols, a very hot topic these days and, uh, biotransformation. And uh, so if you are an all-access subscriber to Craft Beer and Brewing, then uh, you will see that video come through sometime soon. We're not going to talk about those things because, you know, we're just a tease like that. (laughs) We have to, we're going to make you subscribe for that kind of thing. But today, Laura, we're going to talk about uh, haze. It's uh, it's a subject you were presenting on at the Craft Brewers Conference here in Minneapolis. And uh, we're going to talk about using London L3. We're going to talk about creating haze stability. We're going to talk about all those fun technical pieces of making hazy IPA better. But before we do that, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? The answer, G&D Chiller's new micro-channel condensers. G&D's micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers which provides less opportunity for leaks, along with lower global warming potential. G&D Chiller's engineers are committed to green technology design while developing a more energy-efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact G&D Chiller's today at gdchillers.com. Also, get back to the future with Weirman Iseria 1924. Made from the oldest German malting barley variety, Iseria shows malty sweet flavor and a soft biscuit-like aroma. This heirloom malt makes amazing traditional Bavarian-style lagers, not to mention modern craft lagers and malt-forward ales. For more info, samples, and orders, please go to go.bsgcraft.com slash contact dash us. Laura... Let's talk about your history. What's your story? How'd you get in this brewing industry and uh, what drew you into it? And, uh, you know, how did you follow an arc through that? You've worked on the professional brewing side and now you are working in the lab side and doing, uh, you know, working for Omega Yeast. You know, what, what's, the, uh, what's the history look like? Well, uh, kind of started where a lot of people started with just a lot of passion about fermentation. Um, so my kind of training is very academic oriented. I, I did a um, PhD at Vanderbilt University. I studied yeast um, and their stress responses and all sorts of crazy. Like Vanderbilt's okay. It's an SEC team. <laughs> I, I am a Florida Gator and we beat you most years. So, uh, you well, know. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't, I was at the tailgate, but probably not the game much. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> But, I, I also went to college in, in Tennessee, so uh, you know, but but not a school of that size. Yeah, I was I was there for grad school. It was 
quite a different experience, but it was a wonderful time because it was like just when Nashville like started off getting kind of all the food and the beer. And, uh, you know, I was inspired by some of those early breweries in Nashville because, you know, I, I came from, uh, the Northeast. My, I grew up in upstate New York. Um, so I had a lot of exposure to some like real great craft beer just, um, and then came down to the Southeast and, you know, I was hungry and thirsty for that. Like, you know, so some of that meant that I homebrewed and I I got some like fun, fun, um, beers out on my own. And then I also just got to know the, the local scene and, and really start to, um, just work my way into the industry. Yeah. So after, uh, I finished grad school, you know, I was kind of really just tossing it around. What, what really do I want to do? And what am I most passionate about? And I was certainly passionate about the academic science route, but, um, at the time it really wasn't fitting into life. Um, I'm, I'm married and, you know, there's some, you know, just, you just don't pick up and leave for two years, you know? So we, we worked on that and, um, I just found that to be a really new opportunity for me and, and to explore something that I was really passionate about. And that was beer. And, um, before that, you know, I, I was fermenting everything. So like beer was definitely like the, the side that I saw a lot of science going into. So, so you decided to go work at a brewery then Yeah, with a PhD. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) People commented frequently about me yeah. scrubbing the floors, and I'm like, that "What a is great my job. way to pay off those student loans!" Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Yeah. I, well, luckily, you know, you don't. You as a grad student, you know, you do research that you're paid, um, but the stipend's really low. Right. So I wasn't like, it wasn't hard for me to start in brewing. I was already kind of you're, you're used <laughs> there. to making nothing. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and I also knew how to work hard, and I knew it. Like, you know, I, I was driven by my own like curiosity and I just like you know so what'd you do um yeah so I started partnering with a close friend of 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 mine um Gar Schwartz and he had just opened a brewery Tennessee Brewers in Nashville at the time and really just asked can we get your microbiology experience to get our lab going and I feel like a lot of people started off that way they realized all the science that goes into brewing and then got hooked so that was my story like I just I found like Huh, these are way cooler experiments. I get to drink it. And everybody who's drinking it also like gives me some feedback. So, you know, it's better than six years of a PhD and kind of, you know, not being able to tell anyone what you do. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. So it was it was a fun step into the brewing scene and something that I was my family is a bunch of artists. Um, so art and, and food has been a big part of my upbringing and um, you know, they were always kind of weirded out by my sciencey side. <laughs> so now they get it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. But Where'd you go from there? I, uh, so I was there two and a half years, like, um, head brewer, like quality lead and, um, you know, got my, kind of really got my feet under me in the brewing industry, understood sure. production a little bit better and understood like procurement, understood uh, TTB reporting, whatever. Like I just got a feel for, you know, what, what you needed to do uh, in production as a head brewer. And then um, I moved to Chicago and started up at a, a new contract brewing facility, Great Central Brewing Company, um, and commissioned a beautiful 50-barrel Rolex and, um, you know, a CFT candy line and had a bunch of just great 
learning opportunities there, especially working with our customers. Like I got to brew for a lot of really awesome breweries. In, for sure, in, for sure. In they Chicago. are brewing, a, they, they, you were brewing a lot of beer with some pretty phenomenal brewers there. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, taking in a recipe and kind of really hitting and matching to like what they expect out of it and also building trust and building good relationships. It was like a fun, fun time there. So, um, but from there, like I, I unanticipated, like I had no real, um, I wasn't seeking out the bench per se, because I really do enjoy production. But um, yeah, Lance Shaner at Omega Yeast, the owner and also yeast um, PhD, he approached me and just said, like, we're really wanting to push innovation. Like they were actually all about innovation even before I started sure. some of the fun. Um, you know, they were the first to offer commercial lacto pitches. They were the first to introduce a beer um, yeast hybrid into into the craft scene and um they were the first u.s supplier for north american supplier for fike yeast right so like i mean that was what i walked into so i already had like this foundation of innovation um and and really knew that they were driven and passionate about that so then i just i mean it's like the dream job you know <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah so then um I've been there three years now. Come um, build and expand a, a lab and help uh, jumpstart. Well, I shouldn't say jumpstart. They were already doing it, but uh, help accelerate some of the uh, projects that they had in the works. Yeah. And, um, you know, the beginning was like, you know, really kind of setting in the stage of like what projects we were going to start really diving into. Right. Um, and we talked about Thiles with you. Like that was one of the first projects I started. Um, was really inspired by Sauvignon Blanc wine. Sure. Um, so I went really whole, wholehearted into that project from the beginning. Um, and then, you know, some of the other projects like Hayes kind of were observations and interesting. And, you know, when you're a scientist, you keep your eyes open. Sure. Yeah. So we, we picked up on this and we just felt like it was really informative and helpful. Um, maybe, maybe some brewers had figured this out, but to put it into an experiment give really like – um, solid data to support, you know, those anecdotes, um, was really, really fun. Um, so. And you, you all have built a nice team there too. You know, yes. you've, you've pulled other folks, uh, you know, again, other folks that have worked in that brew house and understand what's going on, but also have that, that science lean to them, like Allison Lang, who was at Old Ox, uh, yep. Um, and, and some others, you know, to, to kind of look at product development on a yeast side from the perspective of a brewer. Yeah. And in a practical sense, like right. really just trying to like um, provide the tool or the resource. Right. We're not just like we're not just trying to market yeast. <laughs> we're sure. actually here to like be collaborative. And I mean, the industry is about that. So like my friends right, right. want to ask a question and we just take it on you know so it's it's definitely you know I think just driven by pure curiosity and circumstance of like you know what worked um and just building off of that so well let's let's uh talk about some of those specifics and some of those pragmatic things that brewers out there making hazy beer can really learn from uh but before we do that is your brewery struggling to source or afford berry ingredients historic heat waves 
devastated U.S. berry crops, causing supply to dwindle and prices to skyrocket. That's why brewers are switching over to Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends, which mimic straight concentrates, but at a better price point and with a more reliable supply. Is it any surprise that Old Orchard's best sellers are raspberry and blackberry flavors? Reclaim your margins and order your craft concentrates at oldorchard.com slash brewer also arrived mobile point of sale powers places with personality arrived is streamlining business operations for the makers of craft with an all-in-one solution that was built with love by hospitality professionals no contracts and no monthly fees make arrived a no-brainer for your craft business go to arrived.com forward slash cbb to set up a free customized demo. That's arrived, A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com forward slash C-V-B. A different kind of POS has arrived. So Laura, let's talk about Haze. Where do we start? I mean, we took a very obvious yeast-centric approach to this because I think the, the puzzle is is everything. It's all the raw materials and how they play together. Uh, but a lot of the information had really been focused on on the malt side, um, and it, it's really great information, but also information that had been gleaned from chill haze and um, permanent haze developing when it's not desired right. was was not really fitting into like kind of what the craft brewer needed to build a successful recipe for a hazy IPA. So we wanted to kind of make sure we were filling the gaps. Um, one of the things as a, a brewer at uh, Great Central, you know, we were taking a lot of customers that were taking very different approaches. And one of the big approaches I saw being like the distinction was the yeast choice um, and how easy it was to develop that stable colloidal haze and what level of haze you were getting as a result. So, um, you know, Clearly, we were centrifuging all our beer, so none of this was yeast in suspension. Right. And it just brought that, like, kind of curiosity. Wait, like, it's not lazy brewing? <laughs> no. Or, what are you talking about? No. Like, you don't want to have to, like, <laughs> tip your kegs or sure, do anything. Sure. You want it to be consistent and stable. Um, right. Yeah. And and um, there's still so much of that out there. Like, people really do think there needs to be yeast in suspension um, to, to get a, a hazy IPA. But it's just really not that. So um, I was curious to like, why are we getting more haze out of these certain recipes? And is it the grist? Is it the hopping schedule? Is it the yeast? Um, you know, this all is like a big, complex, like network of interactions. Right. What's coming? What's really making the difference here? Um, so like, yeah, context of brewing brought me to the bench. Um, some of the initial observations we saw at the bench were just like widely dramatic and the differences between different yeast strains and what was huh. like providing a more stable haze. Um, like straight up now we call uh, some of our yeast haze positive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> haze positive yeast. Yeah. And, okay. it, and it really is that these that, yeasts. It, for, for those who aren't following on that, like that's a riff on like the POF uh, phenolic off flavor positive, POF positive or POF negative. Yeah. yeah. And actually it's like a riff on genetics because we always call like when we have a phenotype, you know, we kind of classify that as a 
you know, that's like the trait that we're observing. So it's, yeah, it's haze positive. Or STA positive. Exactly. If it's di- diastatic. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Sure. So, um, yeah. HAZ kinda, positive. It's got to have a scientific acronym for it, right? Yeah. I thought I would be like really creative and make it haze positive. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we just kind of started bucketing these strains into yeah. their categories where we were really observing like, um, and well, what makes something haze positive? What are there some some traits to those that you found, and uh, you know, like like what falls into that bucket? And then, in terms of that, I mean, imagine that things are never binary or black or black and white. There's a spectrum to all of these things, and and you know, yeasts will also fall across that spectrum. How do you define those things? Honestly, that's so interesting to just think about. I mean, there's what what plays out here is like these yeast are related but they're different right and there's a spectrum of like how how we've domesticated them right so some of the traits we kind of observe with some of the strains we call haze positive are they were traditionally top cropped yeast um we don't know really how that plays in but maybe it changed the cell wall composition and made them more buoyant and also indirectly leads to this this other phenotype haze positive um there's a lot of like very big questions still remaining on on the actual mechanism to these use providing haze, but they are on some of them are unrelated, but like in their you know family tree per se, they're not like they're not sister strains, but they might be cousins. So we know you know some of this might have evolved separately um, in the way that we've selected for these traits in yeast. Um, so a hefeweizen strain isn't quite like sister to <laughs> London L three. But it also does fall into this haze positive yeast class, and it was also a top cropped yeast. So there's some definitely like you know there's some correlations here, um, and and I think the main takeaway is that um, you know they're doing something unique. It's not based on flocculation. It's really um, their ability to stabilize a colloidal dry hop dependent haze, and um, we so. Yeah, London L three. No, sure. That's sure. that's quite Not obvious. A big surprise, yeah, sure. um, it, it actually is on that spectrum of the highest haze promoting strain that we have. Um, really is haze positive, you know, on the the high end. And then um, another one that's up there is our Voskovike. It's really really good at stabilizing haze. Um, people have a lot of success brewing hazies with that strain too. Um, and then, you know, a closely related British strain that we have, our British L5, we find is also haze positive. And then this German Hefeweizen strain and Kolsch strain. Kolsch um, strain. It's so funny. We've talked about that before, uh, you know, and apparently and the, the, the Kolsch strains, it's very popular with brewers in Texas. Um, as I found, I know that like, you know, St. Elmo and Pint House and others are all brewing with, uh, you know, Kolsch yeast. And it, it, it is kind of its own thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and I, again, like I've heard people have success brewing hazies with these sure. So like we're seeing, you know, uh, brewers find this out. Coincidentally, we're just starting to establish more of a, of like, uh, the data to support it. Um, so what is this mechanism that allows for these yeasts to stabilize this colloidal haze within a beer? Uh, we are working on. <laughs> the deep, deep, okay. deep mechanism, yeah. right? But um, overall, there's... And, and I am a layperson on this. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to get in way over my head. Let's you know, cover so. what we can cover, I guess. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, so, uh, Explain it to me as if I'm as dumb as I am, yes. 
Not at all. Okay. I'm going deep. <laughs> um, so when you're talking about haze, it's a, it's a colloidal suspension of like, they're really insoluble, but they become kind of that colloidal suspension. So they stay in solution. Um, what, what is they? Uh, so they're protein polyphenol interactions most likely, but there might be other things involved. We don't know how the yeast plays in directly, but proteins from them all, like the proline rich, um, Barley hoarding or wheat gliadins are major contributors to haze. And um, the polyphenols from malt, but also from hops, which we see with dry hop dependent haze, those hops are probably maybe not just contributing polyphenols, but probably polyphenols is a big player there. Right. Um, so, yeah, the, the idea is that these proline um, uh, rich proteins interact with polyphenols, stack and make a bunch of hydrogen bonding and hydropho- like interactions that create this stable haze, um, and it and it just results in well work from Hopsteiner, John Palmay suggests like it's an emulsifier and carrier for hop aroma. Some of the insoluble hydrocarbons can be solubilized with haze, and then you know we're just seeing more evidence for people to prefer these hazy IPAs. And um, some of it might be interplay between esters that the yeast makes and these hop profiles, or maybe the haze is actually that flavor enhancer that we're, we're, we're seeing with these beers too. So um, we're learning a lot still, uh, but yeah, the haze itself is likely just this colloidal suspension of the malt proteins and hop polyphenols. That's an interesting one. So now if, if we back up on that um, and think about how to then, you know, if the goal is to build a hazy IPA with these, uh, you know, I, uh, polyphenols from malt and hops in colloidal suspension, um, you, you have to start with both ingredient choices on the, the malt and the hop side because certainly – those can impact, you know, what you're then put in, you know, what you're creating as inputs that then go into this kind of system, um, you know, and of course how you uh, run a mash into a system is going to impact whether things can work. Talk to me a little bit about that kind of, you know, what you've learned through that approach. Um, are there mash strategies that will help you create? the kind of, uh, you know, malt polyphenols that you, that will then stay in suspension rather than, you know, drop out of suspension. Yeah. One of the things we did with a lot of our experiences, we really simplified it to, to just use barley base malt and have a, and have a very simplified system and see how the interactions between yeast and hops with dry hop build that stable colloidal haze. And in that system, we can get an orange juice haze surprisingly. So with the grist itself, you know, barley sufficient, but you're really rounding it out by adding in the adjuncts, adding more wheat and, and oat proteins, but also beta glucans. You know, there's, you know, a Goldilocks scenario here where maybe you're building up that protein and it's just too much and you're not getting stable haze, but you'll, you'll find the grist is just that balancing, like, of, you know, maybe I don't want to be more than 30% adjunct. Maybe I want to just make sure I'm giving enough to kind of add to some of, um, it's, it's just not a, 
it's not a guarantee. It's similar. Yeah. It's similar to dry hopping. You yeah. know, there's a point where you you hit a tipping point, and the more you put in, the more that those larger particles just start dragging things out with them, rather than actually leaving something back there. Yeah. In the liquid itself, you know, stability. Right. <laughs> and, and, and so that yeah. that stability point. So 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 talk to me about the like, like you know is there a you know general adjuncts. Uh, you know, oat and wheat component that uh, you all have found doesn't, after a certain point, doesn't add to this kind of stability and only detracts from that stability? And is there something to, you know, mashing temperature, especially when it comes to barley or, you know, other types of strategies, whether that's step mashing that, uh, you know, that tends to produce a kind of element, you know, of, you know, that, that is more stable in mm-hmm. haze? Yeah. Um, so with the malt, you know, in our experiments, you know, we basically like increased, increased, increased percentages of malted wheat or or flaked wheat in our recipes to see, you know, where were we seeing the best results? And we were, we were hitting that tipping point. So we definitely were seeing like, wow, 50% wheat is crystal clear. Like, what's that about? Um, so, you know, partly it's going to be really dependent on like what grain you source and, and if it's unmelted, malted, flaked, or, you know, how it's prepared and the specs that you get from your maltster. But, um, you know, it's complicated, so I can't give you like straightforward, really straightforward answers there. But when designing a hazy, you I'm know. I'm still going to ask you. <laughs> I'm still trying to dive into all the particulars here. Yeah. I think the mash schedule in a hazy is really like kind of to target attenuation than, and maybe yeah. more so than it is to, to dial in the haze, I think, um, you know, at a high mash to limit fermentability and right. like, you know, the London L3 strain is super popular for hazy IPAs is multi, it doesn't really utilize maltotriose very well. So when you mash in the alpha range, that produces more maltotriose and it's, it's a little bit harder for yeast to ferment. So people mash a little higher to develop that mouthfeel and that body and that residual sweetness. Um, but yeah, I'm not. So you can get those high Play-Dohs that all the kids yeah. love. Yeah, I know. So on the brew house, like when I was brewing a bunch of hazies, like you would think, oh, God forbid, don't put a protein rest in there. Like you might screw it up completely. But we did. We had a protein rest on, on a hazy that was beautiful, but it helped lauderability considerably. Like we would end up six hours in the lauder without it and, and a half bag of ricels or, you know, this this subtle change on a protein step. Uh, protein rest with um, like limited agitation, gentle tra- gentle mash transfers. Like we implemented these things to make the lauderability improve, but we still made super hazy, you know, super thick hazy IPAs. So there's still, you know, you get you get some flexibility there. You just have to like dial in the process and make sure that you know it works for production and also works for the end result. So where do you end up with uh, with some of these adjuncts like wheat and oats? And is there a, a format that you find leads to more stability versus less stability? Again, I would say I've seen so and yes, much there's variation. there's so many choices here. Yeah. I know <laughs> there's lots of things that you can do. Right? Yeah. We, we, everyone has the caveat there. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking I probably have more experiments <laughs> to get at it and, and really define it. Um, but, you know, it's... It's just more to the approach and kind of the design of your recipe. Sometimes, like, less is more. Um, you don't have to go too high. 
and you know a 20 or a 10 percent wheat might get you a beautiful haze we did all of our experience 100 percent barley and we had haze so there's ways to coax it out of like that yeast component like sure, getting a haze sure. positive yeast in there um yeah so and you know people don't want haze all the time what, what we hope was like we're not just studying how to make a hazy ipa we give a little bit more information into how to make any beer <laughs> sure yeah. sure you know but but london l3 can also make clear beer you know yeah. and, and it's also very possible for that to happen absolutely and, we have uh, an experiment for that oh yeah 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 so Part of our story actually, um, so we were doing a bunch of trials for mitigating hop creep and we had like two different strains we were running, um, Chico and London L3. So that experiment straight up defined haze positive, haze neutral for us because we saw on later dry hopping, this milky colloidal haze was developing with London L3 and just barley and two pounds per barrel of a USDA grown triple pearl. But it was one, it was like pale L clear, on Chico. Hmm. Um, and so when we established that system, it gave us a lot to like basically build off of and we could test a lot more variables. But um, one of the variables was dry hop timing. And when you moved the dry hop up into the early phase of fermentation where you're like high croissant, like maybe under um, 50% attenuated, those dry hoppings were resulting in kind of like that clear London L3 beer. Like, hmm. whoa, what happened? So like a control non-hopped beer and a knockout or early dry hop beer were clear. Like about, well, I hate saying clear because it's not clear beer. Yeah, it's but, not clear but, Pepsi, right, right. <laughs> but non-hazy. Sure. And then um, the, so like your measurements on it. They might it, have an unfiltered look, but they wouldn't be considered pale ale. modern hazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like it's just maybe a little bit of chill haze. That's that. Right. And then you move into the late dry hopping and you get, massive orange juice milky haze where hmm. it's like so from the measurements on haze we use in the brewery NTUs or nephilometric turbidity units we were going from you know pale ale territory of like you know 20 to 100 up to um or literal orange juice turbidity um like 600 700 hmm. with just the difference in di and dry hop timing which is such an interesting one because you know again there is also a conventional logic about of dry hopping early to achieve that kind of biotransformation piece. But it's interesting that you're now saying that that can also actually lead to less hazy beer if you dry hop at that kind of timing. Yeah. And like I said, there have been a, enormous amounts of anecdotes we've heard where like yeah. nothing changed. And it's important because like we don't consider that a change. Like you change your dry hop timing that doesn't necessarily feel different. But it was making a big impact on like hmm. whether people were beginning to experience that. Oh shit, my hazy's not hazy, you know. Like, um, and and you know, tr troubleshoot that and actually have some good data to support. Like, you know, we find early editions don't do really well for haze. Huh. Um, and you know, even the bio, the myth on biotransformation. Maybe it's not a myth, but like, in my head, I don't necessarily think. It has to be an early dry hop. I mean, a whirlpool works for saturating with like these precursor compounds or or monoterpene alcohols, like to help promote biotransformation through fermentation. But the dry hop, like, it's okay if you have a later dry hop. We're still seeing it's like diastole clearance. You end up seeing some activity post fermentation. Like, shouldn't be reliant on on that early dry hopping for that biotransformation. You can get it other ways. 
Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I want to drill down on that a little bit more. But before we do that, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brew House to the integrated hopbacks on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brew houses, SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. Com. Laura, that just seems to to fly in the face of so much of this logic here. What do you think is the mechanism that then is is somehow causing earlier dry hopping to then you know pull pull out the haze from the beer? Oh man, we've tried taking a couple of different approaches. We thought maybe okay, pH at the beginning of fermentation is different from the pH at the end of fermentation. We know pH is important for these colloidal complexes to form. Maybe it's pH, and then we just adjusted a bunch of knockout pHs between four and six. None of that seemed to play in really? for this development of haze in the yeah. in the late dry hopping. So knockout pH wasn't really playing in for us on our experiments. Um, you know, it's probably one of those things that makes a difference. It just wasn't the be all end all for us. Sure. And um, you know, so we we were getting at different things like, oh wow, is this like we started doing yeast blends to kind of get at this too, because if you have a haze positive strain, is this something the haze positive strain is doing or not doing? So is it an added phenotype or is it a lack of a phenotype? Maybe haze neutral strains are just removing haze. Right. So we started doing blends and we started seeing the haze positive was kind of taken over. We were getting hazy beers with the blends. So now we're kind of thinking, wow, there's something, you know, that the haze positive yeast are actively doing to promote haze. And we're just trying to figure that more out with um, some different approaches. You know, we're partnering for more genomic based approaches and we're also looking into the proteomics, getting really deep, looking for that mechanism. You know, is it, we think it's probably related to the cell wall because, uh, you know, we just see these phenotypes of top cropping and some different budding patterns in these haze positive strains that even their colony morphology, like you're looking at plates a lot when you're in the lab. So like these are the things we notice. And um, so those correlations, we're trying to kind of tease out a little bit more of the mechanism behind it. Um, But we definitely think, you know, we've got some potentially some cell wall um, related. So yeast, they have a cell wall that's composed of uh, proteins and carbohydrates. Their manoproteins are... um, really rich in mannose, uh, so, and also chitin is on, and beta-glucans are on the cell wall. So there's like a lot of carbohydrate on the cell wall, but also protein. And these can play into haze. We just don't really understand that yet. I think um, we're just trying to evaluate, you know, how, how yeast is influencing this colloidal complex. So. Sure. Yeah. Are there different, you, you know, we, we think about, we're talking about haze almost as if it's, a monolithic thing and I imagine that they can actually be much more complex than that and that there are also like similar levels of haze that are still produced maybe through different mechanisms and there might be different things causing that and different qualities of that haze talk to me a little bit about that that kind of range yeah it's it, that is super interesting and actually some of our work in hops has kind of thought about that a little bit more too is like we've we've just looked at a bunch of different hop varieties and said like okay we know i mean, brewers have a lot of success with galaxy does it promote more haze in our assays and then the bench um, we saw that galaxy was one of the standouts it really helped promote haze so 
breaking down what about the hop itself? Is it only polyphenol or are there other hop compounds playing into haze as well? So we've seen some situations where you're saying it's not monolithic and we're getting the flip-flop of like, oh, this hop actually doesn't behave like most hops with the knockout addition. We're actually starting to see a little haze develop from this hop. Also, maybe we got a little haze with our haze neutral strain using this hop. So like some outliers there, which that's what you look for in biology. You don't want to like look for the trend. You want to see <laughs> sure, what's sure. not fitting the trend, right? Um, and it's like, so we're seeing that variability. We're seeing like, there's there's a lot of interesting contributors that we just will start to may, maybe tease out a little bit more about. Um, it's more, you know, on the surface right now, we're just getting into more of this, the science behind it. It sounds to me as if you're, you're also saying that there is some hop variety or even hop terroir, and these are different things, you know, because all of these things can impact. You know, I mean, we're talking about, again, multivariate approach to, to all of these things. You know, whether it's hop variety or, you know, origin of hop, um, you know, that could potentially impact haze and haze stability. Absolutely. Yeah. It might be, it might be down to processing. It also might mm. be down to variety or terroir. Um, you know, I've, we have looked at, um, processing. So like temperature. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of variables there. So yeah. even harvest timing, who harvest knows, timing, you know, sure. um, so, but we have seen, um, when we look at different suppliers with the same variety, we're starting, we do see trending on mm. certain varieties, like ones that tend to be more haze, promoting like a galaxy are consistently haze promoting one that maybe don't produce as much haze. We actually see mosaic doesn't put out a lot of haze. Huh. Um, uh, it's but, such a popular hop in hazy beers and it doesn't make a lot of the haze. Uh, and I guess like it may, you know, and maybe we, maybe we'll find, you know, there's, there's a, uh, who knows? Mosaic has so many other attributes. You're not going to not use it. It's just, sure. you know, figuring sure. out like a little bit more about, you know, what about the hop exactly is contributing to haze? Yeah. And then and citra? It's pretty like, it's kind of like just this middle of the road, huh. you know, it produces good haze, but it's not like galaxy haze. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, we're talking about hops. What, what does that range look like? You know, Gal galaxy is a extra hazy producer. You know, where do you, where do you kind of fall, start, you know, moving down the spectrum from there? Yeah. So, um, the range I would say would be like, um, 200 to 600 NTUs. So it's pretty, There, that's a pretty good range. That's like hazy pale ale to like milky New England, yeah. right? So, um, but the galaxy is on that end of the spectrum. Like we see Sabra up there. Hmm. Um, Pato is another one that kind of stood out. Huh. We actually, we have a, a hop that we used for majority of the assays. It was a, it's just a USDA grown um, triple pearl. Variety triple pearl. Triple pearl. Yeah. Um, but it was it worked really well huh. um, in in these experiments and and had that kind of haze activity of a galaxy. Um, but there's a variety like uh, that um, other end of the spectrum, like maybe the mosaics or um, brew one was a hop from Haas that we gave a try on because we heard people used it to help promote haze, and it turns out it actually helps promote haze with haze neutral yeast, but it didn't really, it wasn't really good with a haze positive yeast. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So there's like that, you know, yeah, the science is pretty interesting. So like it's wildly weird, you know. Um, are there hops that you find detract from that haze production? Uh, you know, no. 
Um, and even cryo. You're just being nice when you say that. I can tell. I can tell. <laughs> no, I don't. I really don't think. Like, I think we are getting haze mostly across the board. Yeah. It's just the level of haze. We haven't seen any other than the timing of dry hop being like that knockout dry hop being um, almost like a clarifying effect. Hmm. The uh, the hops tend to perform within a similar range on on haze potential. It's just some of them are on the far the 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 kind of like lower end of the range. Yeah. And um, so side note, the clarifying effect, I say that because when you do a knockout addition or like we call it knockout, but that means basically hops at fermenter full, like before pitch or on pitch, really at the beginning of fermentation. Um, when you do that addition and you do a late dry hop addition, you'd expect to get haze from the late dry hop addition, but you kind of already removed that potential with the earlier addition. So you're seeing less haze with just a small addition at knockout than you would see with just only doing the addition late fermentation. Hmm. Yeah. So it's, it is like a clarifying agent almost. You're pulling something out that won't ever come back exactly. once you do that. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So then strategically... You know, you know, what do you find? You want to finish that fermentation then before you dry hop? Yeah, and the the best case for the brewer, right, is that you could harvest your yeast and pitch it off into the next tank before dry hop. Right. And this is when we see haze. Like, it works out really well. So, um, you know, if you And I know you're telling me the truth when you say that because <laughs> you work for a company that sells yeast and does not have a financial <laughs> stake uh, or an upside to brewers then cropping their own yeast and reusing and repitching them. Well, yeah, so but you, you would much rather sell them a new pitch for every batch. But what you're saying is that main, yeah. Yeah. We're not afraid to talk about that. I think it's a good thing for us to have like good success and I results. I appreciate yeah. that truthfulness. Yeah, I, appreciate I know. It. And you know, talking to the the people at your brewery accelerator thing, like people really starting out, not getting their hands into yeast management yet, and right. telling them like you can repitch a hazy. It's it's a thing. Like try, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's multiple ways to do it. Some people are top cropping, which mm -hmm. is a cool way to do it too. Cause these yeast are meant for top cropping. They, right. That's how they were originally domesticated. Um, so that works, but also just timing it's it. A re so. It's a reason to, you know, put open fermenters into your brewery, right? You know, I mean, people love it for other, like Esther driving esters and just getting better perf profiles out of the yeast itself. Um, it looks so good. Too. Yeah. It does look yeah. really pretty. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it, for me as a quality manager, that just looks like a disaster sometimes, but it definitely works. <laughs> it's yeah. true. It's not a visual. Like you look at it like, oh, that, that seems gross, like, but yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, you get scared a lot of times when you're on the quality side, but then you realize like, wow, I don't have to always think that this is going to be a risk. I got to I gotta test it out first and get a better handle on, on how to do it. So as we're talking about London three, are there other fermentation level inputs or you know uh, yeah. factors that uh, you know you, that you all have found that whether that's time, temperature, whether that's you know total you know load of things pushed into a fermenter, whether that's the way that those things are added, whether that's whole cone versus pellets, whether that's recirculation pushing pushing hops into a tank versus circulating, you know, that uh, fermenting beer through an external tank with those hops. Are there some of those methods of, of adding, you know, these dry hops after that fermentation is complete or most complete, you know, that you found add, you know, to that kind of haze stability? 
I mean, it seems to like not be such a like a high a dry hopping practice is kind of you know the timing is the most in, biggest the biggest mm. influence yeah um you know we on our flask trials we just drop hops into the flask you know it's just like a top port on your tank you're just sure, like adding sure. them there's no circ on it at all um i personally like to mitigate hop creep and kind of thinking about how your hopping practices play into haze and hop creep, I think is really important. So there's two strategies. You can either um, add hops while you're still kind of like at that talent of fermentation. You add a lot of yeast activity and the hop creep isn't so dramatic. You're not seeing that hang. Um, So like get it while it's active kind of thing and the diastole clearance is already pretty good. Um, Or, you know, drop temp and, and minimize the contact time so keep it cold and keep it on the hops like for less time and you will mitigate that hop creep as well. But both of those practices are going to be helpful in promoting haze too. So it for me, it'd be more important to emphasize like how does this work into the other aspects of this beer and production that you're brewing? Like and making sure that you you don't just like kind of extend yourself on like one principle and really not let it fit into production. What do you mean by that? Um, like, I think like some of these, you know, okay, I'm going to early dry hop because I want biotransformation, but now I can't repitch my yeast. Like, that's not helpful. You know, you need to make sure that you have good yeast management and and find a solution for that. Maybe it's top cropping. Um, but try not to like, you know, implement something that's just really not practical. How do you top crop off of a uh, cylinder conical fermenter that uh you know that is so common these days i mean they're not really built for that kind of thing yeah one of the i think one of the big one of the big lessons for me in using london l3 is actually like you know it's such a robust croissant like it just produces this really thick croissant that if you're filling fermenter full and you're not allowing for headspace or maybe you're fermenting a little warmer um or you're under pitching you, end, you tend to like lose all the yeast of the first day because it's blowing off the tank and it's all in the drain. Um, so learning how to like, you know, I wasn't collecting yeast off of that croissant, but that is a way that you yeah. would just be pulling that Taking yeast from croissant. Yeah. yeah, so um, people have implemented that and they've done it pretty well with like hygienic ways. So, you know, just making sure you have a, a CIP arm or you can harvest off of and you have hygienic ways of getting it into your harvest vessel. People put a little CO2 on the bottom of the tank to help rouse it out. So right. if it's not actively blowing off, just a little CO2 pulse will definitely push it out. <laughs> um, so, like, yeah, method. Actually, Jessica Young had a TQ article with the MBAA that kind of laid it out on how they implemented it at Bearded Iris. Um, and that was one of the, like, kind of really good resources for breweries who were trying to, to top crop. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's possible. Um, I always thought of uh, that's that's above and beyond because I'd rather just tie my dry hop a little bit later. Yeah. But depending on how you want to approach it, maybe that's important to you. So, um, and then yeah, with London L three, I think I I like to give tips and tricks because I think it's a little bit of a weird oddball, obviously. Um, so it's not very good at utilizing multi trios. So you're expecting less attenuation on it. So like your mash is really important. So if you want to drive attenuation, you got to hit beta amylase, uh, like 148 mash temps. If you're trying to optimize like kind of that that residual um, unfermentable, like kind of 
mouthfeel to the beer, you're going to target higher, uh, maybe even 156 or, you know, just really high on the alpha range. And um, the oxygenation rates are really important for that strain. It seems to be really needy for oxygen. I was working on mm. a system that was German and I only had compressed air. And I had a lot of trouble getting reliable fermentations with Lindenau 3 until we moved to I said we have to go to oxygen. So we went to oxygen as our our air source for aerating the wort, and that made a big difference for us. So mm. it's really needy on oxygen. And then um, if you're getting a lot of blow off on the tank, you can temp down a little bit on the initial fermentation, like just in that first 24 hours to prevent the blow off. So maybe a degree or two lower. If you were starting at 68 to free rise to 70, maybe it's 66 to 68 so that you're not getting that vigorous growth croisin and it's not just blowing all out of the tank. So yeah. Yeah. Some like, I mean, I think those are just helpful tips when you're working with that strain specifically. Yeah. In addition, so we, we talked a little bit at the, at, at the beginning about other strains than London, London L3 that are also haze positive. Right. Um, in terms of uh, how those behave relative to London Ale 3. Um, yeah. yeah, Voss is completely di- different, right? Okay. It attenuates well. It also, instead of having like the isomalacetate-driven like ester profile, it's much more like a, a citrus-driven uh, fermentation profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's super haze positive. It's up there with London Ale 3, but it's just a very distinct strain. So you can target a different like kind of hazy style with with those two yeasts because their other fermentation characteristics can differentiate. Um, so that's kind of how neat. would you how would you describe then that that Voss you know kind of haze profile yeah relative to something like Londonale three um, just like a little drier like maybe a little bit um, you know more like Chico or Conan like where you're just mm-hmm. getting a little bit like more attenuation just a little bit crisper. You know, it's still obviously like that mouthfeel comes through with the haze. It's just not a sweetness. Um, so that's kind of a fun, you know, angle to it. You know, you, people, depending on what they're targeting on the finishing gravity, you know, they're looking for maybe a little bit drier profile. I think Voss works really well for that. Voss can be used at low temps and high temps. So when we talk about dry hop timing, if you're at a high temp, 90 degrees, like, your dry hop timing and early fermentation is really only that first 24 hours because you're already like attenuated by day two. Um, so it's like a weird, like, you know, we talk about dry hop timing. It's really relative to the degree of attenuation. So, um, but, you know, it's also, you know, pretty, there can be some more kvike character out of a, of a higher fermentation temperature or more just, I think, balanced kind of hop um, hop complementing profile of Voss is a kind of standard ale temp where you're getting much more of that citrus, you know, bump to it. And it's just right. like clean ferment. When you say quite uh, character, what do you mean by that? Well, I think um, for me in perception, it, it seems to be like maybe there's a little bit of like this twang or like organic acid kind of mm-hmm. addition at higher temps or just like putting a little bit more, um, perceived like acidity or, or, or kind of like this, this just twang, I guess. So it's not sure, even, sure. it's not even like tart. It's just a little bit of like a different mouthfeel to it. And then, um, you know, Voss isn't typically prone to some of the like more mushroomy kind of, um, flavors of like horn and all, but that mm-hmm. can be emphasized at higher temps too. 
you know, I think when we, especially when we start start talking about hazy IPA using quake strains, you know, one of the things that sticks in mind over the years of those that I've tasted is that time after packaging, they they seem to develop maybe in a different kind of way. They mm. uh, when it, when it comes to London Ale Three, I think you know we're all generally familiar because it maintains a, a specific kind of residual uh, or, or uh, you know final gravity. That sticks and it keeps the sweetness. Hops will obviously eventually, you know, over time start to, to die off and, uh, you know, then allow that sweetness to come through. And you know, they, they, they also get a little more muted, a little more, more tame. But there's, you know, in some of the, especially the earlier Quike-based hazy IPAs that I've had, I thought that fresher, they were brighter and that over time they almost developed you, you say mushroominess that actually sounds like a, a decent way to, to describe something like that but maybe a little earthiness or a little more uh, you know kind of dirt earth kind of you know mm-hmm. character to them over time i mean you know i mean everything nothing's going to last forever we're talking about you know compounds that are going to change over time regardless um you know but but i'm curious about that if that if there's something scientific to that or if that is just perception based on uh, some beers that i've tried Right now, I would say we share a perception similar to that. Like I would, um, you, you do. And those beers to, after like two or three weeks are one thing, and those beers after you know eight weeks or, or twelve weeks might be a completely different thing. Yeah, and I do think that's fermentation temp related too. Yeah, I think the higher temps tend to exaggerate that. Mm. So I think there's been for me there's been beautiful Voss hazies that kind of sure. last like a, sure. a London Ale three. It just, um, you know, I. I tend to prefer like that, like normal range kind of fermentation just to kind of keep it on that citrus profile. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, but so, yeah. So don't get greedy brewers. Don't try to get that fermentation done in, uh, you know, 18 hours by well, cranking the heat up. Just depending on what you're going for, there's there's great, sure, sure. there's like good styles for that too. Like our, our Lutra strain runs really hot and um, pretty neutral and, you know, depending on the style, maybe you want to turn it out quick so i mean it's just fun to play with those strains they're very dynamic like you know and yes you can get away with high temps but you know just depends on really you know you're the artist here like figure out what works for brewers out there you know tackling this this hazy ipa problem and of course navigating and trying to figure that out you know are there some key takeaways that you might uh you know sum up for them as they are tackling these brewing problems yeah um i would definitely say look for a strain that makes it a little bit easier some of these haze positive strains that we mentioned the um london l3 voskvike um cold strain hefeweizen strain another one of our british strains is pretty good at it too it's not limited there's a multiple out there but look for those strains that you know we'll share we share this work a lot like we presented at cbc just now but um the podcasts other things are out there for like you to reference again um this hopefully no one needs any other podcast hopefully you come back to this podcast (laughs) (laughs) but uh you know the information is available you can use this to help build out like that haze profile on your beer and not be limited you don't have to stick to linal three like yes it's a great strain and it's amazing for like its ester profile and it's the way it builds like hop aroma it's a beautiful strain but um, if you're looking for something different, there's other yeast. Um, but I would I would just mainly say like take a take a really careful look at the yeast if it's a 
if it's Chico, it's great for a West Coast IPA. And it also doesn't make a very good hazy beer. So, um, you know, pick your yeast for your beer. Um, and then the other thing about dry hop timing we covered is it was a surprise to us to see such a dramatic effect of dry hop timing. But those early additions don't play well in developing haze. So just limit to maybe post 50% attenuation to kind of introduce so kick, those kick it out in the whirlpool rather than putting it in there yeah. and then put the rest into your post-fermentation uh, dry hop. Yeah, or even a day four, day five, day six, whatever. It just doesn't, you don't want to have it on that first croisin, like the first um, 48 hours. Does doing, does splitting it into multiple additions, uh, you know, have some sort of, any kind of effect? Like, you know, if you're going to put six pounds per barrel, do you put all six in? Or do you, you know, split it into three additions of two pounds per barrel in order to, you know, is there some benefit to, to easing it on in over multiple additions over a shorter time versus all at once? Uh, we did the double dry hopping. Um you know, if you double dry hop with that early edition, it's not a great thing. But, yeah. you know, when you're staging them later, they tend to be cumulative. So it's not like a, I mean, maybe it's better for developing the hop aroma. But it also, you know, it's fine if you're staging hop additions later in fermentation for haze too. Yeah. 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 They're not, it's not pulling out more stuff as you add more in later on or if you just you know jam it all in up all at once yeah not in our experiments we didn't see that so i mean those later addition timings you can split them up if you want um still seems to help promote haze in an additive way so sure sure did we talk about the temperature for dry hopping and how that impacted those things uh well i don't have answers because all of our flash trials are at ambient kind of room temp um but you know based on industry like trends right now a lot of people are doing those colder dry hops and getting really nice haze so i expect it not to matter so much (laughs) (laughs) and i i did have experience with colder temperatures not forcing stuff to drop out as much even with this haze no yeah Yeah. you can just do it whatever and lucky like you know and this haze you can centrifuge you can like kind of you know i mean centrifuges there's an advantage to that with some of these beers too because you kind of the yeast bring bitterness. They catch that mercine. That hot burn tends to carry over. Right. So, like that center, just removing the yeast in that, like the larger particles, but keeping that colloidal haze in there. It's it's actually pretty easy to do. Hmm. So, hmm. yeah. You're designing your favorite IPA right now. What is that? Uh, what is that beer? Oof! Don't talk. A- <laughs> okay, so um, this comes back to Thiles. <laughs> I, w- I want Dr. Laura's. Favorite IPA? I, what, 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 how would you design it? I have like absolutely love some of the beers people have been making with these new thialized yeast and sure. um, star parties are. It's a great tease because you should watch our class that's upcoming on our yeah. all access platform on using thials and achieving biotransformation. Just a plug. Just yeah. A plug. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, so we have a Chico thialized strain, and I think like just like having that. I like the attenuation. I like a dryness to an IPA. But um, just bumping up tropical on it yeah. and, and people using mash hopping and keeping dry hopping kind of like uh, a little reserved it helps to really drive that tropical right. like, kind of character into it. So We talked about mash hopping with uh, Ben Smith from Surly on the last week's episode <laughs> and, uh, and, and around their beer file and error that you all were also involved in. Yeah, yes, that yeah. was fun. That was fun. Yeah, so those are, honestly, these are some of my favorite beers right now. Hey. That's what I want to drink, so. 
Me too. Yeah. I love thiols. I love that flavor profile. Yeah. Yeah. Any spe- uh, specific hops or uh, you just want your thiols coming from the, the malt itself? I No, I love, like, I want the hops to come in too. Like, um, Nectron's been fun. I've had a lot of, like, fun experiences with that. I, I really like the, um, like, Sabro. Um, I like Sultana. I like, you know, I mean, there's so many kind of fun varieties coming out right now that, um, I think for my like kind of thyle beer, I want something to like kind of really meld well with that tropical note. So I'm going more tropical with my hops. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's bring this to a close. G&D's micro channel condensers use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers. Get back to the future with Vireman Iceria 1924. Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends offer reliable and consistent fruit flavors. Arrived was built with love by hospitality professionals and put SS Brewtex advances to work in your brew house. What's what's the next thing on your horizon, Laura? Well, what's, what's the next thing that you hope to tackle that, that is just sparking your brewing curiosity? Uh, you know, I think we're we're got we got a lot of practical stuff out of Haze. I'm really excited to get more into the the detail. Um, so I'm definitely interested in that. Um, Alice and I have been working on some new hybrid strains. So um, I like you know I like CRISPR, but I like some traditional methods too. And so hybrids have been kind of fun for us in the past. We kind of want to make sure we keep them in there. Um, so we're working on some of those. And yeah, I mean, a lot of this is just inspiration and seeing what brewers are, are going for. You know, I think we caught on to Thiles real early, which, and it was like good timing for everything, for everything, just to be able to, to push this. So we're hoping to catch that next one so hot right now yeah if you enjoy this podcast each week we'd love your support go to beerandbrewing.com click on the subscribe button of course if you're planning to uh, planning a brewery head on over to breweryworkshop.com for information on our next workshop in portland oregon you gonna be there laura i hope so yeah (laughs) hope so either allison or i will be there yeah fantastic (laughs) appreciate the support of omega on that people want to learn more about you about omega about what you guys are doing in that brewing space where do they find you all uh, well, we're we're definitely always trying to make a good stream of content for you guys through these podcasts, but also, sure. you know, um, we'll put up some some stuff on our website and mailers and stuff to our customers, and um, we, we just expect to hear from you. So just reach out through email. Fantastic. Yeah. Dr. Laura Burns, like I said, maybe the most qualified person that I've ever talked to about this kind <laughs> of thing here on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. It's been really fun to talk about these things with you. I love being a part of this. It's so much fun. Thanks for having me. Cool. Cheers. Yep. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.